Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for this time to gather and to sit under the ministry of your word and the ministry of your spirit. And I pray that the words that I speak this morning would be true, that they would accurately reflect who you are, and that they would take seriously what you have spoken in your word. I pray that that I and that the people in this room would not depend upon Grady to accomplish anything, but that we would look to your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts, to change us, to transform us, to draw us close. And so, Lord, we're just desperate to be close to you, to be connected to you, to grow in love for you. And we ask that you would draw near to us as we seek to draw near to you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I'd love for you to open your Bible with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we, we say this week after week, we would love to give you one of ours. Uh, we have a table back here that we call our welcome table. And, uh, and actually, Chris is standing there ready. If you want to raise your hand, we would love to give you one. But uh, there's no greater gift that we could give you than the Word of God, which will point you to Jesus. So um, take one of those, if not now, on your way out. Uh, so it's true that fear can be a great motivator, right? Uh, as I thought about this, um, you know, we, we, we do things because fear drives us often. Uh, the, the, the simplest or the example that came quickest to mind was your taxes, right? I'm sure you don't pay your taxes because you just love writing big checks to the government and you love watching them use that money incredibly responsibly, right? <laughs> I'm guessing that most people pay their taxes out of the fear of the consequences of not paying their taxes. Well, there was a time not too long ago when churches were filled with people, flush to the brim with people, and fear was the motivating factor for people being in attendance at church. Maybe you remember, it was the year 1999. And for whatever reason, there was all kinds of speculation that at the turn of the century, on December 31st of that year, at midnight, the world was going to end. It had been a long time since the previous turn of a century, and people had forgot that that didn't happen the last time. And since most people felt unprepared, they felt uh, afraid of the possibility that the world could end, they ended up in churches looking for some way to endure and get prepared for Y2K just in case it did bring about the end of the world. And although I think that behavior sounds kind of silly 19 years later, I'm thankful that God used that fear so that many people would hear the gospel and so that some would come and place their faith in Christ Jesus. And the fact is, you have this weird kind of, of mixture in the end, okay? The certainty of the end and the uncertainty of the end is troublesome for anybody who's honest and will take a moment to think about this, okay? What I mean is, everybody knows that their life is going to come to an end. That is a certainty. But what happens after that moment is an uncertainty. Nobody knows for sure when that moment will be or what the immediate events after that will be. They've not experienced it to share it with the rest of us, okay? 
And the point of bringing this up is that this idea of kind of fear of that end, fear of those moments and what takes place in those final moments and in the moments after is what drives kind of the Thessalonians here. They have a fear of the end, and Paul wants to address that. When will the clock finally wind down exactly? What will happen in those final moments? What happens in the moments after that? How do we fit into those events? Those are the questions that I think we're going to look at in some way this morning. So let's read this text and then kind of dive into it. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. So I find verse 1 to be almost hilarious here. Uh, With all of our modern discussion and debate about eschatology, eschatology is just the, the fancy word for the end times, what happens at the end when Jesus comes back. For all of our fancy discussion and debate about that, Paul thinks that this subject matter is simple enough that the Thessalonians don't need to know anything more. Wow. Paul says they don't need to have anything written to them. Because of verse 2, because they are already fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul thinks that's sufficient. Man, tell that to the guys who wrote the books on my shelf that are like 200 pages long about eschatology, right? Uh, I'm going to send in a book manuscript. I I got an idea for one as I was studying this passage. I'm going to send it into a publisher on the end times. It's going to be the shortest book in history. It's going to be one sentence. It's going to say, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, the end, mic drop, people can buy my book and it'll be great. In all seriousness though, I want to say just two things here about eschatology or the return of Jesus. The first one is that every view on this, and there are multiple views on this, every view on eschatology agrees on one thing for certain, Jesus is coming back. He's coming. And we can't know for certain the day or the time in which that will take place. He will return, it will come unexpectedly, and you can take that to the bank. There's no debate on that. Many people have made fools of themselves in the recent past and all through church history or through the history of mankind attempting to predict when the end will come. In particular, predict when Jesus will return, which is something the Bible says explicitly you cannot do. The times and the seasons will not tell you with any absolute certainty when Jesus will come. And I think there's not really much profit in trying to uh, speculate about that. And this leads to the second thing that I want to say about the end, the end times. Does Paul mean, think about this very, very closely, okay? Does Paul mean in verse 1, that the Thessalonians don't need him to say anything more about the return of Jesus because they already know all there is to know? That he will come like a thief in the night? 
Or does Paul have another objective? See, I think Paul's actually attempting to encourage the Thessalonian believers by telling them actually something far more important, okay? Because if you're like me, the, the phrase, he's going to come like a thief in the night, is a little bit insufficient. I'd like a little bit more detail. But Paul doesn't give it. But he says that's enough. But I, I think Paul is suggesting that the Thessalonians don't need him to write them anything else about this topic because they are already prepared to meet Jesus. And that's the primary concern, isn't it? I want to try and persuade you that this is the important point that Paul's trying to get across to his friends in Thessalonica. Paul has heard from his, uh, his protege, Timothy, that his friends in Thessalonica, remember, Timothy has come back to Paul, he spent some time in Thessalonica, and now he's given Paul this report. And he's reported to Paul that these people in Thessalonica are concerned not only about when Jesus will come. How, I mean, when's he going to show up? That is a question they've asked. But in these verses, they're concerned about how they can know for certain that when Jesus comes, they'll receive a reward and not a punishment. That they will be called friends of God and not enemies. And so Paul's not saying that they've already perfected all the details about when Jesus will come because we don't get to know those details. But he does need to write them, Paul says, or I'm sorry, and he doesn't need to write them anything more on this subject matter because they're already living worthy of being with Jesus when Jesus does return. And that's the part that Paul is most concerned about. Okay, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 9, if you have your text open, we see the same language that Paul uses in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes in 4, 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Do you see the correlating phrase here? Paul uses the same language to encourage his friends. He's essentially saying, I don't need to rebuke you or correct you about the subject matter of brotherly love because you are living out brotherly love. You're accomplishing the goal. In a God-honoring, God-glorifying way, you are on track. You're succeeding. And so too, at the start of chapter 5, Paul's saying that the Thessalonian Christians, they don't need to be rebuked for failing to live in a way that honors Jesus they're already living in a manner that is glorifying to him so that they will be worthy of the kingdom of God when Christ returns in power. They may not have the specifics about when Jesus will return, but the details are irrelevant in light of the far more important goal of being ready to receive Jesus at the moment that he does appear. Now listen, this is something that we need to hear, isn't it? Because the temptation can be for us to get caught up in conversations about, what, conversations about what is right without giving the proper attention to whether or not our lives are right. Do you see the distinction there? To say it another way, theology can be something that we discuss without being something that we live. And if we don't live out right theology, what's the point of having right theology? theology or talking about it. The Bible says that actually the demons have right theology. They believe that God is one. 
They actually acknowledge Jesus as God. But they don't live in accordance with that truth, and so therefore their theology is not worth, or yeah, well, not worth much. It doesn't get them anywhere. Or look at it another way. It would have been silly for the Thessalonians to spend all of their time and energy trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back precisely, only to show up naked and unprepared for the party. It'd be tragic to get the date and the time right only to find out you're not actually on the list to get in. That would be tragic. And so my point is, I think that we should spend maybe a little less time, I'm not suggesting no time, but maybe a little less time debating the times and seasons of Christ's return and spend way more time preparing our hearts so that when he shows up, we're ready to meet him. And I don't know about you, but I want to be ready to meet Jesus at all times. And this is the point of him coming like a thief in the night. There will be no time to prepare when he does appear. This is the teaching of Jesus on this matter. If we were to look at Matthew 24, he says in verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so the emphasis that Paul is pushing here is to be ready. The call of the Christian is to be prepared. We are called to be holy. That's what it means to be ready. To be obedient to Jesus. To love God and love our neighbor. To be faithful to our Lord in everything. And so are you ready? I mean, if this was the moment, would you be ready? Uh, Sometimes... When I'm at home working and my calendar is free and my day has been set aside for study or administrative tasks or whatever, I confess to you, especially in the summer months when it's super hot, that I sometimes work at my desk with my shirt off. And if you were to send me a text and say, hey, Grady, I'm going to swing by at some point today, and you weren't specific on the time period, you can bet that starting at 8 a.m., I'm going to be sitting at my desk with my shirt on, ready to receive you as a guest. John is disgusted at the concept of potentially surprising me, right? Because I would be embarrassed. I would be mortified if you showed up and I looked like an idiot sitting at my desk with my shirt off writing emails, totally unprepared for company to show up at my door. And so I ask you again, are you ready? Do you live with your soul dressed for that moment? If the trumpet sounded the return of Jesus, would he find you in that moment selfishly fighting for your own desires in your marriage with your spouse? Would he find you yelling at your children in anger over something insignificant? Would he find you wasting your retirement in idleness, looking at pornography on your phone, getting drunk in your living room, gossiping and slandering your Christian brothers and sisters behind their back? I mean, is there any behavior in your life right now that if Jesus knocked on the door to take you home, you would just be embarrassed to have him find you doing? Any unholy or unrighteous thing that you cling to that would keep you from being prepared to welcome Christ when he comes? 
And again, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be found by Jesus when he shows up like a fool with my shirt off, totally unprepared to meet him, even though I knew that he was coming and he was on his way, and I wasn't ready. And Paul does give a very subtle warning to his Christian friends about that day. Now, I'm going to cheat and give you the end picture. He, he believes these people are ready, okay? But he's going to give a picture now of what it looks like for those who are not ready for the day of the Lord. See, although Paul knows that these people are prepared, he doesn't need to rebuke them or correct them about their behavior. He still, though, does want to warn them in a very subtle, gentle way about the consequences of not being prepared. Verse 3, while people are safe and secure in their godlessness, shouting that there is peace and security, sudden destruction will befall them and they will not escape. For those of us who've placed our hope and our security, our peace in Jesus, the day of the Lord, that's going to be a glorious homecoming for us. It'll be wonderful. It'll be magnificent. It'll be a day of light. But for those of us, or but for those not of us, who have not placed their peace and security in Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord will be a terrible day of destruction for them. That's what Paul says here. And Paul wants his audience to remember that fact so that they don't end up being one of those people. So that they continue to live lives that are worthy for the moment when Christ returns. Now look, although we're removed from this text by 2,000 years of history, there's a lot for us as Americans to consider here. There is. Hopefully your Bible puts in this verse 3 quotes around the phrase, there is peace and security, because Paul's actually quoting official Roman propaganda here. Uh, This is what Rome claimed about its rule and its power in the world. The promise of global peace and prosperity. And Paul says it's a lie. It was a phrase that was posted on monuments and temples and altars and statues of prominent people in Rome. Proclaiming that Rome would be the author of peace and security for people who would place their trust in it. But it was a lie. It was a promise that was empty, that Rome couldn't keep forever. And in some ways, we as Americans live under that same lie of peace and security if our hope is in something other than Christ alone. And we especially need to hear this, I think, because America is kind of unique in this regard. I don't know if you know this. Most of the world doesn't have the kind of peace and security that you and I have. The currency in many countries is incredibly... Uh, insecure. Go to some nations like Ethiopia, potentially even the Congo, and there's effectively no government whatsoever. There's no government security. Go to China, you don't have the promise of freedom that you can talk about Jesus and not go to jail for it or disappear for dissent. Go to Latin America, and in some countries, you don't even know who the leader of the country will be next week. But in America, we are routinely promised that you can have a job tomorrow because it's safe and secure here, that social security will finance your retirement, the Wall Street markets will continue to go up and up, 
Our military ensures peace in our land. Our constitutional system of government guarantees a smooth transition of power. And we can be tempted to believe the propaganda lie of Rome that there is peace and security. We can be tempted to take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on some political figure who renews that promise to us once again. And that's nothing but foolishness. Don't get caught in that. It doesn't mean you can't engage in politics or appreciate the country that you live in. But the promise of political security, political peace, peace in this world is a distraction from the eternal peace of Jesus Christ. And don't forget it. As Christians, we dare not believe the lie that there is peace and security and therefore then place our hope in anything other than Jesus. Because the day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, there will be vindication for the righteous, hope for those who believed and remained faithful, deliverance. But for those who've placed their hope in something else, not Jesus, who've placed their peace and security in something other than Christ, there's going to be judgment. And everything that they've built their life upon will fall into ruin. The swift and terrible day of the Lord will bring punishment for the wicked, destruction for those who placed their hope in a false peace. This phrase that Paul uses in verse 2, the day of the Lord, I've kind of skirted around it. I want to focus in on it for a minute. It's a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. And almost every use of this phrase in the Old Testament paints a terrifying picture of God. God in His wrath, God in His judgment, God's fierce anger upon those who choose not to honor Him as God. Isaiah 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. Joel chapter 1 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Or maybe the most intense found in Amos 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? and gloom with no brightness in it. Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5 that godless people will not escape the destruction of that day, which is already coming, even now, like a thief in the night. Now before you gloat over those godless people riding human history to sure and certain destruction, because your faith is in Jesus and you're not among them, which can be tempting when you see them shamelessly mock God in arrogance. But before you go down that road, weep and wail for how disturbing and heartbreaking this truth is. There are some churches that would never quote Amos as the body is gathered together to talk about this. There are some churches that would never quote Isaiah when the Bible talks about these things, because it's disturbing. And it's heartbreaking, this truth. 
Yes, there will be great rejoicing in heaven and earth over the destruction of the wicked and the righteousness and justice of God because that is good and right and true and as it should be. But right now, right now, doesn't your heart ache for these people living in darkness? It should because we are commanded to love our enemies and even love those who would persecute us. And aren't you humbled by the fact that God's grace has allowed you to not be among the fools who say there is no God? Aren't you humbled? Is your heart so cold that your eyes are dry and not filled with tears for these people who don't know that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night? Their destruction is close at hand. And shouldn't your knees and my knees be just calloused from the amount of time that we've spent bowed over in prayer that this kind of judgment would not come upon them? Oh, that we would be like Abraham pleading with God to stay his hand of judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And on the day that Christ vindicates me and destroys the wicked, I'm going to worship and glory in God's goodness and justice. But far be it from me before that day comes to not boldly warn and patiently plead and lovingly provoke and courageously call for sinners to repent and place their hope in Jesus Christ. Far be it from me to not pray for those whose destruction is certain and to love them that they might know the grace of Christ. Yes, the coming of the Lord, it is great comfort for us who believe. And we should heed the words of Paul to have true peace and to be not afraid or discouraged in light of current circumstances. But the coming of the Lord is not only comfort for us, it is a burden that we carry in this world of darkness. We know that He is returning like a thief in the night The time is short and we can be prepared, but the earth is full of those who do not yet know that and those who have not chosen to meet him and be prepared for that moment. And I pray that we're a church that takes that burden seriously. The praise for the boldness to speak the truth of Jesus and to also walk his path of righteousness, taking no pleasure in the destruction of sinners but eager to see all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And now we see in verses 4-5 through why Paul is confident that his friends in Thessalonica will escape the day of the Lord and why they don't need to be rebuked or corrected for how they are living worthy. From the report of Timothy about their conduct, Paul knows these people are not living in darkness like the rest of the world. Paul knows from their conduct and their way of life that they are children of light and they are children of the day. Now just in case it's not obvious, day and light are uh, opposites. Light and dark are two different ends of a spectrum. They correspond to two opposite realities that the Bible uses uh, to illustrate a spiritual reality with the words light and dark or night and day in many different time or places in Scripture. And so let's focus in on this for just a moment. What is darkness then? What does Paul mean? Darkness is a moral state of sinfulness. It is a willful disdain for God. 
That's the same force that drives this all-out assault that we see in our culture about God's design for men and women, gender and sexuality. This darkness is the same force that calls a beautiful unborn child in the womb of a mother a lump of tissue. It's the same force that makes people calloused and hard-hearted to the plight of the foster child, the poor migrant, the homeless, the abused, racial injustice. Darkness is the sinful disdain for God that has abdicated men of their responsibility to be selfless husbands and loving fathers, strong protectors, and gentle discipliners. Darkness is the sinful disdain for God that's filled churches with people whose God is prosperity, who have no regard for the commands of God to reject worldliness and be holy. Darkness is the same evil that creeps into churches sowing bitterness and strife, anger, selfish ambition, and hollow hypocrisy. And darkness is the natural home for us who apart from God's grace would celebrate injustice, hate our neighbor, and love our own glory. But we are not creatures of the darkness if Christ is in us. If we have responded to God's call to step into His purifying light, then we are not those creatures. Instead, we belong to light, and light is a moral state of righteousness. It's a joyful regard for the God who is holy. It is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a commitment of love to the God who stepped down into the darkness that we might be brought into the light. Light's the power of God to sanctify a marriage and change a marriage so that it bears fruit and doesn't end in brokenness. Light is the power of God to lay down arms and to lay down our lives for one another. Light is the power of forgiveness and grace. It's the same force that drove Jesus to love his enemies, repaying their curses and their taunts on the cross with the words, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Light is the truth that what God has decreed is good, is beautiful, is right. Light is the same quality that caused Jesus to humble himself so that we could then be empowered to be humble and get low at his feet. And where we used to belong to the darkness in our natural state, being ourselves thieves and murderers, sexually immoral and idolaters, boastful, proud, arrogant, drunkards, full of enmity, strife, divisions, dissensions, Now we are those things no longer because of Christ. Because by the grace of God, we've been called sons and daughters of the Most High. We are children of light, dancing and reveling in the freedom of God's mercy. We've been called out of the destruction of darkness into the everlasting glory of God's radiance. So do you see what Paul does here at the end of these verses? He's such just a brilliant writer. I love it. Paul says that the day of the Lord is coming, and then he paints two pictures of that day, even going so far as to call Christians children of the day. That is, I think, the day of the Lord. 
And so we get these two radical pictures. For those who belong to darkness, the day that is coming, the day of the Lord, is terrible darkness. Those who disdain God on that day will receive wrath. But in contrast, those who belong to Jesus, the day of the Lord is a day of light. When they will be called His children, children of the light. And it will be for us a day then of celebration because we have no need for anything else to be taught us about that day because we have been preparing for it from this moment now and from the moment of our salvation and sanctification through lives of righteousness to the very moment when Christ appears to call home all who are holy to the glory of Christ Jesus. And we seek all the more to prepare for that day until it comes. But I want to close with one final thought here, okay? There's an amazing scene in the Old Testament in Exodus 33 where Moses makes this incredible request about God. And I've probably talked about it before because I find it just fascinating. Moses says to God, show me your glory. He asks to see the face of God. And God explains to him, no man can see my glory and live, Moses. You don't know what you're asking me. But God does this incredible thing. He says, you know, Moses, I kind of like you, and so I'll give you a little peace. And he commands Moses to go up on the mountain, and there Moses will find a small cave, a cleft in the rock, the text says. And God says, Moses, hide yourself in that cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by. And to keep you safe and alive, to prevent your destruction, I'll place my hand over that cave so that you're not destroyed, Moses. And as God passes by then, Moses is given this great and wonderful privilege, I think, to see the train of God's robe, which Scripture says fills the temple with His glory. Now think about this. If Moses had been so bold as to stand outside of that cleft in the rock, so proud as to think that he could stand in the presence of God as God descends with all of his glory, what would have happened to Moses? He would have been consumed. He would have been destroyed. Isaiah describes God descending on the mountain like a or I'm sorry, 1 Kings describes it like God descending a fire, an earthquake, a mighty wind, right? But when Moses trusts in the mercy of God to hide him, to cover him from God's awesome coming, he is granted this request to see the power, the glory of God, if only from between the cracks of God's fingers as he stares out of the cave, right? And this is our hope in the day of the Lord. This is why we don't fear. Because our God is merciful and for the poor in spirit who long for the kingdom, for the pure in heart who hunger for God, we will see God. On the day that He descends, we will not be destroyed, but He will hide us in the cleft of the rock that is Jesus Christ and we will see the glory of the Lord. And as His glory descends and purges the earth of all evil and wickedness and darkness, of all mankind who suppress and disdain God's truth, on that day of judgment and destruction, God will hide us, His children of light, in the cleft of the rock, safeguarded by His own hand of mercy from the doom of the nations. This is what God will do 
for us who trust in Christ, who seek to honor Him with lives of holiness. Because He's called us by name to be children of light. Because He's merciful. And because we've responded to that mercy in obedience and faith. And I just want to say, I hope to find you there on that day. I do. I hope that you and I will dance together in the light of God's glory. Even as we are simultaneously under the shadow of His mercy in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that the day of the Lord is coming. And we thank you that you've given us the grace to believe and place our trust in you that we will not be destroyed on that day. Lord, we do pray for those who don't know you. God, as much as we want you to come, we pray that you would wait. That you would be patient. That you would yet pour out more of your grace and mercy. That many more might believe and place their hope in you. We think of the Muslims right now, Father, who are far from you, who are praying and fasting for Ramadan, and we pray that you would give them grace, dreams and visions, open their eyes to see you. We pray for those fools who deny that there is a God, that you would make them wise and open their eyes to see you. We pray for our family, our friends, our neighbors, those who are far from you, that, Lord, they would come to see that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. And apart from you, they will not escape that destruction. God, would you give them the same grace that you've given us? Would you humble us to pray? And God, we do again just give you thanks that on that day, great grace and mercy and joy and rejoicing and peace and security is in store for us because you've hidden us in the cleft of the rock because we are children of the day and children of the light. I pray that we would live worthy of that truth, prepared to meet you in any moment in which you might come. Amen.